You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda. And I am your co-host, Katie Putz. Hey, Katie. Good to be back with you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How is your December starting? It's going well. Uh, I have been following the World Cup, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, are probably pretty excited to see two teams from the Asia-Pacific region in the knockout stage. Uh, just this morning, South Korea trounced Portugal, which was an incredible game. And Japan, of course, I think stunned the entire world by topping their group with both Spain and Germany. So uh, there's a lot of uh, exciting football slash soccer action to look forward to in the coming days, including the possibility of a Japan-Korea quarterfinal. Uh, so uh, let's see how that goes. But we're not here today to talk about the geopolitics of uh, football, uh, even though certainly there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but uh, Katie, as as I think will probably be not too surprising to many of our listeners, uh, what we will be talking about today is the remarkable um, nationwide protests that have broken out in China in response uh, to well, in response to a few things, but most generally speaking, the approach that China has taken to controlling the COVID-19 pandemic. I think when the pandemic started way back in early 2020, one of the things that you and I talked about on the podcast and offline was the possibility of this leading to political instability in a variety of countries. And we've seen that, you know, I mean, people have commented on the fact that political assassinations, coup attempts, uh, other other types of domestic instability have manifested over the world, uh, partly directly related to measures that certain countries have taken with regard to COVID, but also just the general societal um, upheaval that has accompanied uh, attempts to control the pandemic. And I think now we're beginning to see some of that in China. So I think we'll we'll talk a bit about, first of all, what has happened. Uh, and, and the acute cause of this appears to be a fire that broke out last Thursday uh, in Urumqi in China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, the western province that most recently has been in the news, of course, for the um, the treatment that the Chinese Communist Party has uh, sort of meted out to the Uyghur minority and other Muslim groups uh, in Xinjiang. But what happened, and we still don't exactly know uh, what started this or, or, or how many people exactly died, but there was a fire that broke out in an apartment building that was under strict lockdown due to China's zero COVID measures, which I'm sure as many of our listeners have seen on social media involves particularly draconian measures like literally locking people into their apartment buildings, zip tying their doors, welding shut doors in certain cases. So obviously all of that is terrible from a fire safety perspective. And what did transpire in Xinjiang appeared to have been a large scale fire that killed several people, including children that were trapped inside the building. And this sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back for many people across China, right? Protests in China are not really that unusual, despite what I think a lot of people might think. You know, we've we've talked about previous protests on this podcast. Uh, environmental protests happened in China. Mm -hmm. We had uh, workers protesting in Wukan in 2011, uh, you know, hundreds, uh, tens of thousands of workers that rose up in the early 2000s. But what's really unique here is multiple protests about a single political issue, i.e. COVID-19 controls in China's zero COVID strategy, breaking out in various cities across China that appear to be sparked by an incident that took place in the in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, right? So that's a really kind of unique constellation. Um, so, Katie, now that I've sort of, you know, laid out what we're really talking about here, I guess, I mean, the first question is, you know, how surprised were you to sort of see this break out? I mean, I'll be honest, when this when this was breaking out over the weekend here, I was sort of just glued to China Twitter, just trying to make sense of what was going on. It, it you know, it wasn't necessarily what I expected to see, even though we had sort of that banner in Beijing criticizing mm -hmm. Xi Jinping before the 20th Party Congress. So how surprised were you? 
Um, I, I mean, I was surprised a bit at the scale. I think I had a sense that this was coming, um, you know, a, a little in earlier in November. Um, there was a Foxconn factory in, in central China that had be begun restricting workers from leaving. Uh, and so a whole bunch left anyway. And there were videos of people sort of sneaking out of this factory and leaving. Uh, the company then offered uh, large salaries and bonuses to people who would come work. Um, but by sort of mid to late November, those workers were also protesting. And so there were videos of clashes between workers and, and police just ahead of, of the fire in Urumqi. And so I think that that set sort of one degree of tension was these videos of, of people fighting with uh, you know, security guards decked out in full hazmat suits and sort of the absurdity of this this COVID lockdown um, policy and the way that, that Beijing was was sticking to that line. And then you had the fire in Urumqi. Um, as you noted, we don't know that much uh, about uh, the specific fire and the specific circumstances, and that's honestly by design. The uh, the media reporting atmosphere in China in general is fairly restrictive, and then Xinjiang is especially restrictive. Um, what we do know is that Xinjiang has been on a COVID lockdown for three months. And so, uh, you know, something like this was bound to happen almost. Um, and then I think it's also worth mentioning in September, uh, a bus crashed that was carrying people to a, a COVID quarantine center, killing 27 people that got people really angry. So it's sort of this accumulation of both larger tragedies involving dozens of people and then individual tragedy stories of, of parents who couldn't get their children out of a locked apartment building to take them to the hospital and the children died. There have been a number of those. And so there was a slow accumulation of frustrations with the COVID policies. And then we got to the party Congress in October. And, you know, in the weeks ahead of that, everybody was kind of watching to see if at the party Congress, uh, Xi Jinping would take the, that sort of momentous uh, time and then pivot and sort of change the policy when it came to zero COVID. But the party Congress came and went and the zero COVID policy remained the center of uh, the Chinese approach to the coronavirus. And and so, you know, I I think like everyone, I was, I was surprised and glued to sort of watching these these um, protests grow and, and be cracked down on. Um, but the, the tea leaves were there. Um, you know, the things were sort of headed in this direction in that China's policies have been so restrictive for so long that, and there was never a, <laughs> there was never a, this is how we get out of this um, plan. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's something Beijing is dealing with now. So, so yes, I was surprised, but, but I think, you know, when we sit back and, and look at what had been going on for the last uh two years, uh, the, the signs were there that this was going to reach a, a boiling point. Absolutely. And, you know, I think I think also looking at the nature of the protests, uh, you know, there have been a variety of sort of slogans that protesters have taken to everything from, you know, zeroing in directly on the COVID policies to more broadly criticizing Xi Jinping. I mean, you know, calling for the leader to step down. Right. I think that's that's especially remarkable. Uh, those types of protests, especially on, in the Xi Jinping era, especially since the 18th Party Congress, uh, haven't been all that all that common or at least at at scale in the way that we've yes seen definitely the the expansion of um grievances and and not to make everything about central asia but this is something we saw in kazakhstan in january when protests started over mm -hmm. uh gas and oil prices and then suddenly everybody's talking about how mad they are at the nazarbayev regime uh, that had ruled the country for 30 years 
moving back to China. So it, it it's not surprising that, you know, the acute grievances related to the COVID restrictions expanded to other areas. But I still think that that remains, that's the core. That's what people were angry about is right. that, you know, and, and this is something that our colleague Shannon wrote in an article um, earlier this week that, that I wanted to um, bring up is that, you know, uh, what did she write? She wrote, nearly everyone in China can imagine the same ugly fate befalling themselves or their loved ones through no fault of their own. Later in the same piece, she wrote, people have felt the heavy hand of the state pressed down on their lives and realized they have no power or recourse in the face of mistreatment. And so I think even though this fire occurred in Xinjiang, which is a region that a bulk of, of the Chinese populace has not risen up to care about abuses in, they could see themselves in that fire. And so that's where that connection to, you know, I should go out and protest. Um, maybe it grows beyond that. Maybe that wakes some people up. But but I, I think it certainly is a very direct um, personal frustration that's being seen. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, to, to sort of, I don't know if this is speculative or not, but but on on the one hand, it almost seems like what's happening here at at a larger scale and and under Xi Jinping is more broadly speaking, you know, China after the reform and opening up, and particularly beginning with the early two thousands uh, when the economy was booming, Chinese people actually enjoyed a fair bit of relative personal freedom, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, I will emphasize relative, and all of that has really been snatched away in the last uh, three years. I mean, especially with uh, the COVID lockdowns and the intensity of human suffering that has caused. It's it's really, I think, you know, when you when you sort of look at that that broader picture, and, and particularly for for younger folks and people who sort of started families in the in the last ten to fifteen years their expectations about what life in large Chinese cities was like, mm -hmm. which was quite comfortable and, and quite prosperous as long as you didn't criticize um, the political powers that be, that has sort of been snatched away now with these lockdowns, right? It doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, um, in, in Urumqi or in Shanghai, China's zero COVID policies have affected you in a similar way. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. that's been sort of a nationwide thing. So all of this, I think, you know, also just underscores the, the sort of hole that China's leadership has dug for itself on, on COVID-19, right? There's there's a clear sort of way out of this, which is to import and vaccinate China, the Chinese population using Western mRNA vaccines, which are just much more um, much more efficacious, particularly against the Omicron variant and subvariants. Mm -hmm. China has not done this. Uh, instead, they've committed to their own vaccines, treating vaccines as really part of the country's broader national security architecture. Xi's commitment to zero COVID is also just born out of the 2020 narrative when the global narrative was that China actually managed the pandemic much more, um, you know, much better than many Western countries did. And China really leaned mm -hmm. into that. So there's there's really no easy way for China to get out of this, right? Let's say they do abandon zero COVID. And there are some signs of this, right? The state council has sort of walked back, uh, you know, statements indicating that there might be a new phase of pandemic controls coming for China. But even mm -hmm. if they walk this back, uh, you know, most public health experts basically expect that given the low rates of vaccination in China, particularly for the elderly, um, the new COVID variants would simply wreak havoc uh, across the country and overwhelm the Chinese health system. Uh, and that would undermine the narrative uh, that, that she has tried to promote uh, since 2020. And the alternative is if they import Western mRNA vaccines, that undercuts that same narrative in a different way, albeit likely uh, limiting the damage that would be caused by allowing COVID to fester. So it's it's not clear to me how exactly this is all going to end. I think she personally, it's it's hard to sort of 
gauge what his personal reaction to all this has been, given that the indicators that we've really seen in the days since these protests broke out uh, have been through sort of um, from official sources, state media, spokespeople for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who've sort of hewed to sort of the the traditional narratives about foreign forces, uh, so on and so forth. So it's not really clear to me how China gets out of this. Yeah, I mean, you've described the situation very well. It's a the very definition of being between a rock and a hard place, uh, except that I, I think in many ways Beijing has put itself in this position. Um, you know, we did see this week this sort of announcement of a, quote, new stage um, and, and some efforts at, at relaxing some restrictions. But I think it's worth underscoring that even the these re- relaxations of restrictions are still incredibly restrictive. I mean, we're talking about allowing asymptomatic cases to quarantine at home. Uh, that's just beyond anything that anybody in pretty much every other country in the world has had to deal with. So if that's the relaxation, it's I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be enough. Right. Um, and, and you've described the sort of um, public health quandary very well. You know, the the latest number that I saw was that 65 percent of people over the age of 80 in China had had a primary series of vaccines. Um, And as you noted, the Chinese vaccines, which are not mRNA vaccines, they're they're a more traditional older style of vaccine, which uses an inactivated virus. Um, They're not as as efficient and not as efficient at, at beating the virus as mRNA vaccines, but China has not authorized the use of Western vaccines, uh, with the exception of the very recent um, during uh, the German chancellor's visit. They announced that the BioNTech, the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine would be authorized for the use uh, for use in China, but only for foreigners. So Chinese citizens can't get it, but foreigners in China can. Um, and so I think the problem that Beijing is facing is that they need to find a way to assuage this public anger, which some of this reopening will do, but I don't know that it'll be fast enough. But if they open the doors too quickly, um, too many people might get sick. There's going to be a skyrocketing death count in China. It could it could get really ugly really fast because, um, again, China's been so locked down. Not a lot of people have gotten ill in China, which is on the one hand good, but on the other hand, there's less sort of uh, immunity built up from infection that, that a lot of people around the world who have ended up getting COVID at some point vaccinated or not uh, have have been able to acquire. And so China's just just in a different place than the rest of the world. And I, I don't know what the pathway out of that is. Um, I mean, aside from... Uh, bringing in more effective vaccines and, and, and vaccinating the population and then um, reopening uh, with, with, with support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think there's a, there's an opportunity here for, for the world to help China, but I don't know that China wants to accept that help. Um, and so I, I think we're in a really interesting place. Now, the one one thing I do want to discuss before we before we finish up is what this tells us, like the the expansion of these protests, I think, is really interesting in light of China's surveillance and censorship efforts. And so, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. China can sort of try to crack down on information about these protests, and yet similar protest tactics were seen in various places in China. And I think that tells us something about human nature and, and, and the nature of, of technology, that it's not as all-encompassing as, as uh, I think its designers would like to think. So I'm curious your thoughts on sort of the technology angle of this. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, clearly the fact that protests broke out across the country. I mean, first of all, you had to have the the pre-existing grievances that could be um, that could be acted upon, which were which were mm-hmm. shared, which were universal across China. Um, yeah, I think I think the censorship architecture here certainly saw some cracks. Although censors have been working over time, uh, and it's yep. becoming increasingly. I mean, people have probably noticed that. Uh, last weekend, we saw many videos coming out of major Chinese cities that were just shot on smartphones. But in the days since, uh, those types of videos have really petered out. Uh, but the protests mm-hmm. themselves uh, likely haven't petered out. So the censors are, I think, catching up. It's always been a cat and mouse game. Uh, and over the last 20 years, China's uh, Internet censorship architecture uh, has simply become more sophisticated. But obviously, it's not perfect. And, and the fact that the outside world uh, knows about these protests uh, is largely, you know, due to the fact that these videos have come out of the country. Uh, obviously, Western journalism uh, hasn't been able to cover these protests in the way that previous incidents, for instance, the 2011 Wukan protests were being covered. Um, we had, of course, that terrible incident involving the BBC's uh, Ed Lawrence, who was uh, manhandled by by Chinese uh, state security. Uh, so it's it's I think um, really, you know. Again, we don't know exactly how this is going to shape up, if if all of this will peter out because censors will be able to catch up and and the momentum will simply dissipate, uh, or if the momentum will persist uh, for the long haul. And that actually, I mean, you know, takes us to, I think, what might be the biggest longer term consequences, including for, you know, domestic politics and, and more geopolitically, uh, is that China might be entering a period of tremendous internal instability, uh, right? That, mm. that um, you know, China spends more on internal security and the people's armed police than it does on uh, its external military spending by, you know, going by some figures, although these budgets are, again, a little bit not as transparent as we'd like them to be. So this is something the Communist Party leadership has been concerned with, right? Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, multiple generation of Communist Party leaders have been mm-hmm. concerned with avoiding the missteps that they believe led to the collapse collapse of the Soviet Union. And of course, the conditions in China today are, are very different from whatever the USSR endured. But I think this will be a wake-up call, uh, right? And everything we know mm-hmm. about Xi Jinping suggests that the lesson he will take away from this is not that uh, he went too far with his autocratic practices and repression, but simply that more will be necessary, uh, right? I'd love to be wrong about that, but I think that's really been the trend line of China under the Xi era. So it's not a very positive, uh, you know, this might not be the hopeful inflection point uh, of a revolution that I think some people might be hoping for, uh, but it could simply presage a much more domestic, um, a, a much greater period of domestic turbulence for China. Um so, Katie, actually, before we before we wrap up, I mean, just really quickly, um, I thought we could just take a couple minutes to just talk about the reactions from overseas, uh, including mm-hmm. in, including by the United States, uh, the UK, because uh, um, unsurprisingly, uh, you know, Chinese state authorities have have indicated that they believe hostile foreign forces are behind these protests, which is a, which is a very common practice in this part of the world, um, and so it's it's put. The Biden administration, for instance, in an interesting position where there's a lot of sort of domestic hue and cry uh, here in Washington and around the country to have the U.S. forcefully support the protesters uh, who are um, protesting Xi Jinping, COVID controls, calling for freedom of speech and assembly, all sort of, you know, core American values. But at the same time, the U.S. doesn't want to foment uh, or at least play into that narrative that the Chinese state is pursuing, that this is all the CIA or, or sort of the U.S. is all behind this. So I think what we've seen so far from the administration is sort of a wait and see and a cautious approach. Uh, you know, American spokespeople have said the protesters are speaking for themselves and they've tried to sort of avoid uh, adding an American narrative into what's happening inside China. 
Um, but again, it's 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 unclear to me, you know, how tenable that would be. The UK, I think, has taken a different approach, right? Prime Minister, you know, Rishi Sunak obviously had to react to a BBC journalist becoming, uh, you know, being arrested and detained by Chinese mm -hmm. uh, security forces. Uh, and the UK has been a little bit more forward leaning on this. Uh, but I wonder what your what your sense is of, of what's driving the reactions, uh, particularly from Western countries. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that that you you pivoted to this, um, you know, the the conspiracy theory that's sort of recycled constantly is that uh, foreign forces are fomenting unrest in insert autocrat country here. Um, I think it's particularly interesting at this point, from an official standpoint, the Chinese authorities have not acknowledged these protests have happened at all. Um, obviously, they know that they're going on. Obviously, there's increased censorship. Obviously, the police are, are, are beating people up and taking people off to jail. Um, but officially, this isn't happening. Um, I think that it's worth mentioning one video that I saw that was just, you know, if it, it, it was it was just perfect. It was sort of a, a crowd of people and, and somebody in the crowd mentions uh, foreign influences. And the rest of the crowd just straight up mocks this man. Uh, my favorite quote of which was, quote, by foreign influence, do you mean Marx and Engels? Is it Stalin? Is it Lenin? Uh, and then sort of went on to say, you know, like, did foreigners start the fire in Urmchi? And so, you know, I think that might, you know, sort of peel back a little bit of the ridiculousness of that particular conspiracy theory for for some Chinese. You know, when when it's when it's themselves in the streets, you know, nobody, nobody from abroad told them that that they were being repressed. They felt it for themselves. Uh, so I, I thought that was particularly interesting. And then we kind of get into the origins of communism. But that's for a different day uh, when it comes to. But in that context, I understand the U.S. wait and see reaction because the, the Chinese people are, are doing their own speaking. Um, obviously, as you pointed out, I, I think the British had a, had a different imperative because there was a British journalist who was um, sort of uh, taken taken away and, and, and uh, rudely treated. Uh, and so I think I don't know how long that can go on, though, um, because this is sort of I think this is the Biden administration giving Xi Jinping the space to maybe do the right thing and, and address these issues. Um, I don't know that anybody seriously believes that he will. I, th I think there's certainly a, a sense uh, that you, you echoed earlier that, you know, the, the lesson that, that the Chinese government might actually take from this isn't we should be less repressive, but we should be more. Um, and so, you know, I think within these protests one thing that speaks to me is is the I, I love blank paper protests because it's so um sort of uh it's interesting how upset authorities get to a blank piece of paper um, because it says i can't say anything so i'm not going to say anything but i'd like to say something um and even in, in in that vein you know the united states values of freedom of speech you know they're not even trying to say anything just trying to hold a, a blank piece of paper um so i, I think you know, there might come a time where the United States should say say something. Um, but uh, on the other hand, uh, the Chinese people are doing a fine job of saying that for themselves. Um, so we yeah. shall see. Absolutely. I think that's very well put. Uh, I think the other thing for the administration is, uh, you know, this comes just a couple of weeks after the the Biden Xi meeting in Bali that that many people saw as a bit of a reset. And so to mm -hmm. potentially jeopardize that momentum in US China relations, uh, if there is momentum, I think might also be weighing on the administration as, as part yeah, of the response here. And and it may not be worth it at this juncture, because the, the United States saying, 
yes, the Chinese people should have the freedom of speech is not anything new. Uh, the United States is not going to materially support anybody. There's nobody to support. This is, this is these are, as far as we can tell, there's no central organi organization to any of these protests. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the value of the United States kind of messing with that that maybe reset. I don't know. I don't know if it's a reset, but we'll we'll see. I think that's certainly what Washington hoped. <laughs> but you know, I I don't think there's. I don't think there's much value in that, um, in repeating what, what everybody already knows that the United States would like to say that it supports. Um, but we shall see. Yep. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there today, Katie. Uh, and uh, the year is almost at an end. So I think the next episode we do will be a look back at the year that was uh, 2022. Certainly no shortage of big stories to talk about around the region. Uh, it's but a Katie, very boring year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Katie, as always, thanks for joining me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. And for our listeners, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes if you're not already a subscriber. If you have been a subscriber but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can leave us a review anywhere you get your podcast. We really appreciate that. It helps get the word out. And as always, please reach out to either me or Katie if you have suggestions for issues you'd like us to cover on future episodes of the podcast. We do take reader feedback, uh, listener feedback into account as we plan the episodes. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.